LinkedIn presents. So, you know, this is a show where we interview authors of books, but wanted to make an exception in your case because your seven-part series, American Ivy, which ran on your show, Articles of Interest, is, I think, every bit as well-written and well-made as as any book I read last year. And it oh, truly, it changed the way that I think about myself, the way I think about fashion, the way I think about the country, the way I think about the relationship between culture and commerce. Uh, it's really, really remarkable. So thank wow. you for making it. <laughs> thank you so much. That's so kind. I, that means a lot. I worked really hard on it. <laughs> thank you. Okay, let's rewind. A few weeks ago, I fell in love with a podcast. It's called Articles of Interest. And the host, who you just heard me gushing to, is named Avery Truffleman. She cut her teeth as a producer on the legendary pod 99% Invisible and went on to make shows for Curbed and The Cut. And then, late last year, on the Articles of Interest feed, she launched a seven-part miniseries titled American Ivy, all about preppy style. Americans have been wearing some version of this style since the early days of our nation. And this look has since been exported all around the world. And I think we will continue to wear some version of this look going forward. And I think I know why. But I am going to need to use the entirety of this season of Articles of Interest to tell you. That season-long answer was riveting. And today on the show, Avery's going to share some of her most exciting conclusions. I was not blowing smoke, by the way, when I said that listening to American Ivy changed how I think about all those things. Fashion, culture, commerce, this nation, me. And I'm not alone. The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times all named American Ivy one of the best new podcasts to come out last year. What makes the show so good? I think it's that Avery is basically a great observational comedian. Not in terms of being funny, although she is funny but in terms of her ability to look at something out in the world that we take for granted, something ubiquitous, and then to ask, what's the deal with that? So what's the deal with preppy style? Where did it come from? How did it become so universal? Why hasn't it died out? Is it only for country club jerks? And should we believe Vogue when they say it's cool again? I'm Caleb Bissinger, and today on The Next Big Idea... Please watch your profanity, preppy. Hey, what makes you so sure I went to prep school? You look stupid and rich. Preppy went mainstream and stayed there forever. This episode is a two-for-one deal on chinos, polo shirts, and cashmere sweaters because I'm sitting down with two different guests. First, I'll talk with Avery about how a Japanese anthropological study became the Bible of Ivy style, how Brooks Brothers inadvertently created the con man, and the small role my great-grandfather played in defining the preppy uniform. At almost exactly the same time that I finished listening to Avery's podcast, a new book came across my desk. It's written by a veteran fashion journalist named Maggie Bullock, and it's called The Kingdom of Prep, the inside story of the rise and near fall of J. Crew. Now, this is not the kind of book that I would usually be drawn to, but because I just spent like five hours immersed in Avery's sartorial study, I decided I'd give it a quick look. And then I couldn't put it down. The rise and fall of J. Crew in Maggie's deft, gossipy account 
may be the most fascinating business story I've ever heard. Because it's not only about how a startup goes supersonic, it's also about the radical evolution of consumer culture in the last 40 years. If Avery's podcast is about the origins of preppy style, where it came from, how it took root, then Maggie's book is about the commodification of that style, how it was branded, packaged, and sold to a global audience. So in the second half of the show, I'll chat with Maggie about the surprising origins and rollicking history of J. Crew. Hearing her tell it is going to change the way you think about those anachronistic catalogs you still get in the mail, the mall you begrudgingly visit on the weekends, and the personal shopper you carry around in your pocket. Oh, and it's also going to change how you think about the clothes in your closet. Because you may not consider yourself to be a prep, but I know, I know there is something preppy in there. A knitted sweater, maybe. Those conservative pants that are broken in just enough to be sort of cool. Like it or not, it's a preppy world. We all just live in it. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I want to start this conversation by going back in time, thanks to the power of Gmail. Mm. I dug up this email that I got on July 23rd, 2010, day after my 19th birthday, from my stepmother. And the subject line is, quote, habitually chic. And at the top, she writes kind of cryptically, it's up to you to bring back the look. And you scroll through, and it's all these photos of these white guys on the Princeton College campus wearing khakis and penny loafers and madras tops. And then at the bottom, it says, these photos come from a book called Take Ivy that was published in Japan in 1965. Now, you obviously know this book, Take Ivy. It's sort of one of the starring characters of your podcast. Tell us what it is, because it's a bit of an unusual document, and and why it's so important to the story of 20th century American fashion. Oh, my goodness. Your mom sent that to you? My mom, my stepmom, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Goodness, that is okay. I have a lot of questions for you about that. But take Ivy. I also discovered it around that time, probably like 2010, 2012, because that was sort of a time that was very, I, th- I think these were like the Obama J. Crew years. You know what <sighs> yeah, I mean? Like yeah. Preppy was sort of having a very chic, liberal moment, and like Vampire Weekend was a thing. And so I think at a J. Crew, I saw a copy of this book called Take Ivy, and it's pretty strange as a document. It was written in 1965, and it's this anthropological study of what students were wearing on Ivy League college campuses. And the fascinating thing about it is that it's written originally in Japanese for a Japanese audience, and the insights are things that really... Like they are they are commenting on how weird American university culture is in a way that we as like Americans cannot see. Why was it being sold in J. Crew? Why is it still something that like people in the know know what Take Ivy is? In the world, it's so hard to see what preppy style is. Mm-hmm. If you're not wearing a t-shirt 
and you're not wearing sweatpants, if you're like, okay, it's time to dress up, most of us end up wearing some version of the style that was once called Ivy, that came to be known as Preppy. But it's just so in the water that we can barely see it anymore. Yeah. In the same way that you can't talk about race without talking about whiteness, and Mm -hmm. you can't talk about gender without talking about masculinity. In fashion, it's so fun and sort of easy to talk about subcultures, talk about hip hop, talk about punk, talk about these new movements. But preppy is the thing they're all reacting against. That Mm -hmm. is mainstream, quote unquote, quote unquote, respectable. You know, these ideas about what is mainstream and what is respectable all come down to preppy clothes. And we just can't see it normally. And so Take Ivy is this sort of document of like, you want to know what it is? Here's what it is. This is the look. And it's one of the rare cases where we can really, really, really see it in action. It's been like a decade since I got that email. But I... That is so funny. I still remember my reaction because I I looked at those photos and I thought, why the f*** would I want to bring back that style? Like... (laughs) What? Why did your stepmom want you to do that? Yeah, I was like, well, I was like, I looked at those pictures and I was like, that's how the guys at school who made fun of me for writing poetry and playing guitar dressed. Like, that's how the lawyer dads in our neighborhood dress when they go to play squash at the country club on the weekends. 100%. It's sort of smacks of privilege, but it also, I think in my 19-year-old brain, like, just as bad, it was conformity, you know? Oh, yeah. And I gather listening to the show that that going into this project was your take on Ivy style as well, wasn't <laughs> 100%. 100%. I was just like, this is what jerks wear. This yeah. is just what... And also people who are not only jerks, but just like unadventurous, unimaginative right. people. And yeah, it is like every villain in a John Hughes movie. And uh, through time immemorial, they're like wearing polo shirts. I hated it. And then the thing that I was kind of shocked by is how much I love it. After learning about where it comes from, I'm like so into it. And it's funny, like when I wear preppy clothes, it's so approachable. Like people come up and they talk to me in this way that they don't otherwise. It's really interesting. Like when I wear a tennis sweater, everybody's like, oh, nice sweater. Like people, all kinds of people, like people love it. One thing that you bring up in the show that I thought was fascinating is this idea that when you put together an outfit, you're writing a sentence. Yes. And you have all these sort of choices you can pick from. Do I want to wear a t-shirt? Do I want to wear a blouse? Do I want to wear khakis? Do I want to wear jeans? Blah, blah, blah. But they have to cohere in a way to make them legible, to tell a story, to signal something to whoever is reading you. Totally. I want to say that this is an insight that I totally took from... Derek Guy, the menswear Twitter guy. Yeah, so his idea is when you are making an outfit, you're functionally writing a sentence. And that's not in a nitpicky way that's like, well, you know, do your colors match? Or it's not trying to say that there are these rigid rules. It's just like, if you're wearing a sort of streetwear looking jacket, that's a vibe. Mm -hmm. And if you mix it with like cowboy boots, you're like, mixing tenses. You know what I mean? Those are like two different meanings. Clothes represent certain identities and certain stories and certain climates, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by like, they kind of have to go together. And the example that I give is if you're wearing like a fireman's jacket and a feather boa, that doesn't make sense. People are like, what are you doing? That's why when we see most clothes on the runway, 
it just is like, that's weird. I can't, I don't know how to make sense of it because I've just never seen that sentence before. That's like a, that's like a nonsense sentence. And so, yeah, there's this idea that preppy clothes weirdly just sort of work mm-hmm. in like most sentences. You can wear a tracksuit with like preppy shirts. You know, you can wear like a loafer with raggedy jeans. Like you can sort of mix genres more readily with preppy clothes. And that I think is their like weird staying power. So write for me the sentence of sort of the ultimate preppy outfit. Well, I feel like the sentence that the ultimate preppy outfit is saying is like, I just came from the country club. But I feel like the real meaning for most people is like, hello, how are you? Like, it's actually a very friendly style. Mm -hmm. It's like, trust me, talk to me. There is this funny paradox, too, that it's a very disarming way of dressing, right? That it makes you instantly legible, approachable, safe. And yet it's born out of this very exclusive world. Through the mid-20th century, there was this idea that, that like, people want to look rich. People copy the people who are wealthier than they are. And then once everybody's wearing it, the rich people don't want it anymore. They find the next thing, then everybody copies them, and that's how trends disseminate. But Preppy breaks that for a lot of reasons. Not everybody took it on to look like these people, to look Mm. like rich white people. And then the other thing is, as the look disseminated into the wider, wider populace, Rich white people never stopped right. wearing it. Like there are st- like look at Tucker Carlson. There are still people who live this life who like swear on this preppy Bible. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people like Tyler the Creator who are actively not trying to look like Tucker Carlson, but they're kind of wearing the same right. thing. So it weirdly sort of upholds and breaks all the rules of how we think trends work Mm -hmm. in society. So it is really interesting that, yes, it came from this small, very elite inner group, and then immediately the paradigm explodes. So, okay, take Ivy, one of the stars of your book, or sorry, of your podcast. Another star is Brooks Brothers. Yes. And, you know, before listening to the series, I just sort of thought of Brooks Brothers as the place that my grandfather shopped. Yeah. I don't think I quite realized how long Brooks Brothers has been around, how long they've been doing fundamentally some of the same clothes, (laughs) but also how significant they were to really changing the fashion industry. And I think you say at some point that Brooks Brothers was very tied up with the early days of the American democratic experiment. Tell me what you mean by that. So Brooks Brothers, it should be said, is the oldest continually operating clothing company in America. That's Amazing. It's like over 200 years old. Brooks Brothers is an institution. They were among the first kind of wave of retailers to make ready-to-wear clothes. It used to be that when you wanted clothes, you wouldn't buy clothes. You'd buy cloth and then you'd bring it to a tailor or your wife. Or if you were a woman, you would sew it yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what clothing was. And Henry Brooks, who was a grocer, not a clothier, uh, was part of this wave of people who had, through this kind of fascinating fluke of history, access to cloth. And they were like, what if we just cut out the parts ahead of time and made some standard sizes 
And this was the origins of kind of the modern shopping experience where you could go into a store, try something on, and leave with something Mm -hmm. that day. And that was considered extremely American. When foreign dignitaries would come to visit America and see what was up with this democratic experiment, one of the favorite cliches that they would always come back and say is, oh my God, everybody there dresses so well. Mm -hmm. And actually this wasn't in the podcast, but it was a huge moral panic in the 1840s. Because it used to be that like, oh, poor people are in rags, rich people are in jewels, blah, blah, blah. You can like kind of know where everybody's at. But suddenly in New York City, everyone was just wearing suits, many of them made by Brooks Brothers. And this was the era of the con man. This is when you first start to see people who like say they're from somewhere, but they're not. Or like rich people pretending to be poor, poor people pretending to be rich. And so it sort of represents this world of distinctly American possibility, but it really freaked people out. It was a very scary, scary possibility of like, who can you trust if everyone is in suits? And everyone means, of course, white men. Women did not have ready-to-wear clothes. Black people who worked as servants, even technically free, had ready-to-wear clothes, but they were not suits. They were dressy livery very often. Um, kind of separating them out of the American democratic experiment. But it's it's really fascinating. Like, Brooks Brothers was one of these major players in forming what is considered American dress-down style, this kind of fallacy of democracy that everybody costumed themselves in. So I want to share another. This is a more personal, more of a sort of sartorial therapy session than I anticipated. But oh, I'm here for I it. want to share something that I learned recently that I think you will appreciate. My great-grandfather, who was a Madison Avenue advertising executive, came up with the phrase Weegens. No way. And I share that because it's cool. What? But That's I, so cool. But I also share it because he was not a blue-blooded wasp. He was a Jewish college dropout. That's a part. That's a huge part of the history, yeah. And that's a huge part of the story. I mean, the story of Ivy Style, which is sort of the sartorial mode that we associate with American waspy privilege, is really, at the same time, a Jewish story. It's a very Jewish story. And so many of the key players, from Jay Press to Ralph Lauren, are Jewish. Oh, yeah. And legions of independent tailors who have since gone out of business. Like, it's, you know, it's funny. When I started making this story, I was like, oh, I don't want to have to take the train to Boston. Or, you know, I didn't want to interview people named Biffy in Kennebunkport. And it's a very New York story. And it's an extremely Jewish story. And it's an extremely Black story. And it's extremely Japanese story. And, like, that's the heart of Ivy. But, yes, it's like, that is so cool. I know. Isn't that cool? That it was your grandfather? Great-grandfather, Elkin. That is so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a huge part of it is that in the same way that Take Ivy was able from this Japanese perspective to kind of show us our Americanness, I feel like it took Jewish immigrants that outside perspective to kind of mass produce and, and cultivate waspy style and make it American style. You know, it took that outside perspective to um, move it along. Do you own Weegens? I do, here. I only just bought a pair after discovering the connection. I love them. They're great shoes. Yeah, they're cool. I'm I'm having a hard time breaking them in. 
Oh uh, yeah, 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 they're rough. They're killing, they're killing my tootsies, but uh, but yeah, they're cool. Suffer for fashion. Coming up, J. Crew started in a drafty warehouse in Passaic, New Jersey. So how did it grow into a multi-billion-dollar brand? If this was happening today, they'd be all over Fast Company. You know, they would be like the startup du jour. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. My girlfriend Kirkley has this cardigan. It's gray, cable knit, leather elbow patches. She's had it ever since we met back in college, which is remarkable because that was a long time ago. And the cardigan was already a hand-me-down from her mom, who bought it in the 80s at this upstart fashion brand, J. Crew. Sometimes when Kirkley wears this cardigan, we'll look at each other and say, wow, can you believe that's from J. Crew? I would never shop there now. I wouldn't, because whenever I walk past a J. Crew, the mannequins in the front window are invariably dressed in some nauseating variety of plaid, or even worse, pants with little lobsters embroidered on them. And that's a shame because J. Crew used to be, I mean, not exactly hip and certainly never haute couture, but stylish, understated, practical, necessary. J. Crew was the brand you could turn to when you needed clothes that, as Avery just said, looked friendly, trustworthy. I wore a J. Crew suit to my first job interview and I got the job. So what happened? How did J. Crew go from the paragon of preppy style to a parody of it? The answer to that question I was surprised to learn when I read Maggie Bullock's new book, The Kingdom of Prep, The Inside Story of the Rise and Near Fall of J. Crew, has as much to do with technology as it does with fashion. The rise and fall of J. Crew is tied to three retail innovations, three technological shifts that revolutionize the way we shop. Here's how I framed it to Maggie. So, Maggie, you write near the beginning of your book, quote, J. Crew is an almost perfect microcosm of how shopping itself has evolved in the last 40 years. And then you go on to say that the story of J. Crew connects the dots between three retail innovations, right? So the first is the catalog boom of the 1980s. The second is the shopping mall bonanza of the 90s. And the last one is really the, the rise of the internet and online shopping in the 2000s and beyond. I thought maybe we could structure our conversation today around those three seismic technological shifts. Ooh, that's exciting. So let's start with catalogs. You know, before I read your book, I was under the mistaken assumption that J. Crew was just one of these older than time American brands, right? <laughs> that it was like around when they wrote the Constitution, that it was Henry Ford <laughs> wore J. Crew. But that's not the case at all, right? It starts in the 1980s in Passaic, New Jersey, and it's founded by people who aren't really fashion folks, right? They're catalog people. 
J. Crew would be very pleased that you believe that they were founded by the founding fathers. That's great. But no, they started in 1983 and very much as a sort of business strategy, because in the late 70s and early 80s, there was this huge catalog boom coming. People saw it coming. You know, it wasn't a surprise. It happened for a lot of reasons. You know, everything from like the zip code had been an innovation of like the 60s and that kind of came of age. And somehow the zip code made it cheaper to put out a catalog. And then like super, super macro factors, like women were going into the workplace and they were starting to view their jobs as careers and not just a stopgap between, you know, school and motherhood. So they weren't going to have time to shop as much anymore. And catalogs were sort of seen as this perfect solution. And, you know, you were talking about these phases of innovation, but I was really struck in my research about the, the notion that the catalog in some ways was to that audience of the late 70s and early 80s what the internet was Mm. in the late 90s, which is like super convenient, in your home, accessible, shoppable 24 hours a day. It was actually like a pretty innovative way to do it. Now, I mean, catalogs by that time had been around for over 100 years, but in the 80s, they really like hit their stride. and, And the biggest boom that we ever saw in catalog shopping came in the 80s. And so Arthur Senator is the founder of J. Crew. He wants to capitalize on this catalog boom. And it's almost like he and his early colleagues are trying to reverse engineer the ultimate preppy brand, right? I love the detail of where the name J. Crew came from. Tell us a little bit about that. At the time, Ralph Lauren was a huge hit in the mid to late 70s. And he was really mining the codes of preppy and selling it to a whole new audience. And essentially they took Crew, which was also an Ivy League sport, sort of like Ralph's polo, right? And then they chose Jay because they wanted it to sound like a name. Um, Jay looked good with Crew. (laughs) There was like an aesthetic piece to it. And also there was this old school preppy brand in New Haven called J Press, which is still around today. And I think, you know, altogether that name was supposed to embody like the sort of credibility and authenticity you needed to feel like a player in the preppy world. You could sort of picture them sitting around in this kind of dumpy office yeah. in Passaic being like, Ralph's got polo. What's another? Should we be tennis? No, that's a little, that's on the nose. What What are other, field hockey? How about crew? Like it's so, it's so disingenuous in a way that's kind of funny and charming. Totally. And I also like relatable. I can picture myself in that room. This is a gamble. Launching a new catalog is a gamble. You're relying on lists of customers that you've bought. You have no idea if people are really going to connect with the brand. And yet right away, J. Crew resonates with people. And I think that within the first few years, they go from $3 million in sales in 1983 to $160 million in 1989. So this is a very popular brand out of the gate. What accounts for that? Why, why does it catch on the way it does? Well, I think you're right. If this was happening today, they'd be all over Fast Company. You know, they would be like the startup du jour. You know, I mean, they were coming from nothing. So even when the size of the company that they reached in 1989 could not compare to something like the Mighty Gap, right? They were very tiny Mm -hmm. compared to the bigger players in that retail space. 
but the growth was exponential. And I think that the reason is because they did make good clothes. Like these were really actually pretty well-made, well-designed, basic clothes that everybody sort of needed, right? Like the kind of clothes you just need to get dressed on Tuesday. But they conveyed them or they portrayed them rather in within this amazing context of this world that was not the Ralph Lauren country club, super shiny world, but it was like just down the hill from that. So you weren't smacked in the face by the privilege and the wealth and the sort of unattainability. What you felt was this like gentle waft of this beautiful life that these clothes were sort of a part of the picture, but they weren't really the point of the picture in a weird way. Nobody who's preppy really wants to claim the word preppy, right? Yeah. Nobody wants the mantle of that because it is so loaded and it basically means you're an overprivileged brat. But J. Crew found a slice of that pie that felt like good American good taste without a lot of the tackier baggage. Yeah. And that slice lived in like lake houses and on mountain slopes and like in this really kind of outdoorsy, free and easy environment that they were showing you in the catalog. You know, I did this conversation with Avery Truffleman about her podcast, American Ivy. Which I'm obsessed with. It's so good. (laughs) For the record, obsessed. (laughs) And, you know, she talks about Ivy style, which is this this style that really emerges on Ivy League campuses. Sure. And she makes a really interesting distinction, actually, between Ivy style and preppy. Mm-hmm. And she says that they're both sort of casual, they're both sporty, but preppy is really in service to a lifestyle, you know, that it really is about conjuring up that world, as you say. And you're right. The thing that's amazing about J. Crew is they somehow figured out how to divorce some of that from the uglier, more complicated elements of the preppy lifestyle, the privilege, the exclusivity, the, you know, anti-Semitism and racism, right? So it's it's pretty amazing. And my book is not just a love letter to J. Crew. I really do try to deal with its complexities. But if we are talking about the things that I appreciate about J. Crew, it is that I think they extracted what was best about the look and the vibe of preppy, which is a lot of what Avery talks about in American Ivy, which is like this sort of slightly rumpled, not so perfect Mm. way of putting clothes together that feels like quote unquote real style as opposed to that you were sort of born with, you know, that you, it feels like natural and low key. And I, I don't know, they were just the best at doing that in that period of time. So, J. Crew was born in the catalog boom of the late 70s and the 80s. Then we get to the 90s, and the catalog is supplanted by this. What are you guys doing at the mall today? Shopping and looking for boys. <laughs> Same. Which comes first? Looking for boys. <laughs> looking for boys. The shopping mall. It's just, it's the like the definitive space of the 1990s. And... J. Crew, I think, is a little late to the party there, right? Arthur Senator and his daughter, Emily, who's really instrumental in, in running the business as well, they realize that if the brand is going to survive, they've got to get into physical retail. They've got to open some stores. But there's some questions as to whether they can actually be successful at, at making that transition, right? 
any founder of any company will empathize or relate to the fact that they killed it in catalogs. And then what happened? People got kind of tired of catalogs and they started going to another place for their fix, which was the mall. And the mall, if the catalog boom of the 80s was a big business, the mall phenomenon was like, you know, quadruple, quintuple, like exponentially bigger boom and change in the culture too. American life almost felt like it revolved around the mall. And so J. Crew finds itself in the position of like, oh, we're we can't grow and continue this growth without making a big splash in this space. But as you said, there were questions about how well that would go because A, what did they know about going into malls? It's a totally different kind of business. And B, they had built this brand all through the kind of mystical allure of this catalog. All these photographs. A photograph, as we all know, anybody who's ordered a pair of khaki pants for all the company and you get them in a brown box and they come out and they're probably wrapped in plastic like they have none of the allure that in just holding them in your hand that they had when you saw them in that picture that made you want them in the first place right and certainly not when you put them on your actual non-model body right it's like oh so there was a real question mark around could j crew which was so based on these dream world in the photographs live up to the dream in real life j crew makes the transition to retail and the growth initially is kind of slow right i think in 1997 j crew has 48 stores by comparison banana republic has 226 Mm -hmm. so it's still a small brand and it's growing slowly and, and they realize, Arthur and Emily, that if they're going to compete, they need a major infusion of capital. Right. And meanwhile, Arthur is also, I think he's 70 or approaching his 70s, and he's kind of getting ready to retire. Emily is the obvious person to take over, but she's got to figure out a way to buy him out. So they coalesce around this idea of let's sell part of the company to a private equity firm. That'll give Emily the big infusion of cash she needs to buy out her dad. It'll give J. Crew the operating capital it needs to grow. Sounds like a win-win, right? But you're suspicious of that decision, I think. Well, at the time, if I was Emily, would I have hesitated to make that deal? Probably not. It, they made hundreds of millions of dollars in the deal. It seemed to position J. Crew for to really join the big boys, like compete on a level with like Gap or Nike, like just amazing huge companies. But fashion and investment has a sort of checkered relationship because what investors are looking for is profits and consistent profits and fashion is the very definition of inconsistent like in j crew land it's not just that you could have a bad season or a bad catalog which they did from time to time but also they they would be affected by things like a really warm winter like people weren't buying all the heavy woolen sweaters that they had banked on you know like there are all kinds of vagaries in the fashion business that affect your quarterly profits. You know, you go up, you go down, and that's not something that investors love, right? They're looking for the steady or actually huge upward growth. It's really hard for fashion companies to guarantee something like that. So this private equity firm comes in and 
yes, there's this infusion of capital, but the company is now saddled with a massive amount of debt, right? So it goes from being a little small company that generates about $12 million a year in profits to overnight, it now has $300 million in debt on the books that it's got to figure out how to clear. And this arrival of the private equity investment kind of sets off a pretty dire chain of events, right? Emily ends up getting forced out of the company. The private equity firm, TPG, brings in this guy from Nestle to run the business who knows really nothing about fashion. His claim to fame is that he figured out how to like make lean cuisine have more Parmesan flavor. He knows nothing about clothes. That obviously, as one could guess, doesn't work out very well. Now we're into sort of like the early 2000s, around 2002, and the folks who are in charge of J. Crew are, are beginning to wonder, like, should we just pull up stakes on this? Should we call time of death on this company? Or should we give it one last shot? They decide to give it one last shot, and they hire this guy, Mickey Drexler, to come in and save the company. Who is Mickey Drexler, and, and why did they have so much confidence in him? Well, it was really a Hail Mary, right? They really were at the kind of at the table having a literal conversation about whether or not to cut bait on this investment. You know, it just wasn't working out the way that they envisioned it. And they weren't making the money that they wanted to make on J. Crew. And lo and behold, Mickey Drexler, the most famous merchant in retail who had been at the helm of the Gap since 1983, had helped grow the Gap into a company that had no peer, right? Just like the, an enormous company who had also run Banana Republic, which was owned by Gap Inc., and who had also been the person who came up with the idea, like dreamed up Old Navy. Old Navy, by the way, it, it was such an enormous phenomenon that by that point, people thought Mickey walked on water, right? He was named the Merchant Prince in the press. I mean, he was just, there's sort of no one to compare to him all the way up into the late 90s. And then Gap, like every company does, like J. Crew has also done, just had a crisis. It stopped working. And all that profit dried up fast. Mickey was booted out of the Gap, which was something that people on Wall Street really just couldn't believe. I mean, he was the most famous person in American retail at that point. And um, he was ashamed, you know, I mean, this was a really low point for him. And it happened to be the moment when J. Crew was having this meeting, like, what do we do? Are we going to shutter it? And there's like, well, do you think we could get Mickey Dressler? And they did. They hired him. People were shocked that he took the job. J. Crew was 120th the size of Gap. You know, in many people's eyes, it was a real come down from the job he'd had before. But what's sort of amazing is that he's so embarrassed by what happened at Gap and so fired up to sort of prove that he still is the merchant prince mm -hmm. that he invests $10 million of his own money in J. Crew when he joins the company, right? He's not just like, okay, fine, I'll take this other job. He's like, no, I'm putting my own money behind this and I am going to show the world that I can take J. Crew, the little engine that could, and turn it into a brand that's every bit as big and respected and powerful as Gap. I mean, he was furious. Mickey's still furious about this. This is not an in, mm -hmm. this, this is not a wound that people really ever recover from. But it, boy, does it fuel the next chapter for him. And so Mickey, it seems like he's got two really great talents. One is that he's really good. At seeing, this is his phrase, 
where the hockey puck is headed. Like he just kind of has this sixth sense for where fashion might be going. And the other thing that he's really good at is retail. Like he just knows how to do great retail stores. I mean, to the point where he was good friends with Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs was like consulting Mickey on how to design the first Apple stores. Mm-hmm. So he has this vision when he comes in for J. Crew that they've got to get back to sort of the original thrust of the brand. They've got to get back to this idea of affordable luxury, that lifestyle idea we were talking about. What are his early moves and how successful is he at, at revitalizing J. Crew out of the gate? He created an ecosystem within the offices of J. Crew that just shook up the business. He made everyone sort of tune into him, Mickey as the brain power behind this whole organization. And the way that he did that, very famously, he installed a intercom system throughout the whole company. You would hear Mickey's voice all day long. But the other way that he had to do is communicate to the world at large that J. Crew was still aspirational and that change was coming. One of the first things he did with that was with cashmere. Cashmere has its own set of connotations, right? It is just seen as a luxury good. It gives you the feeling that you're you're sort of it's a rich people thing to wear, right? right. Cashmere sweaters. It's also baked into the the sort of preppy, you know, like beautiful knits are part of like the history of prep. So Mickey goes hard on bringing back cashmere. He brings it back in all of these colors, and he lets it slip in the press very strategically that this is secretly Laura Piana cashmere that you could get at a J. Crew price. You know, Laura Piana makes their own line. Their sweaters sell for thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. So he finds a way to sort of seed this mentality that J. Crew is still an upscale, aspirational, preppy brand, which it had really lost a lot of that luster. And he found a way to sort of reinstate it fast, which was sort of amazing. He has help too, obviously, and sort of the key figure there is Jenna Lyons, who ends up becoming incredibly famous in her own right. Tell us who she is, right, and how she changes the aesthetic of J. Crew. She started at J. Crew in, I think, 1990. She was straight out of college and she really worked her way up. You know, she has said she was like an assistant to somebody's assistant to somebody else's assistant. So by the time Mickey got there in 2003, she had worked her way up and worked in almost every department in the company, right? So she really had J. Crew DNA in her bones before Mickey got there. And when he got there and he really needed to fix the company fast, he ID'd her right away, saw, saw the talent in her right away, and also saw that she had what anybody needs when they land in a completely new company, which is she understood the brand. She had a vision for what it ought to be and what it could be. You know, um, he really needed people who got the legacy of J. Crew as he was deciding, sort of cherry picking which parts of that legacy would carry on and which parts of it they would shed. And they really complement each other, right? I love this former employee says that Mickey's burning desire is to be cool, but he's not really that cool. And Jenna Lyons is really cool. So she sort of lends the cool factor and the credibility to the enterprise. And in return, 
Mickey has her back, right? He's her defender and he supports her in a way that is kind of uncommon in in what can be a fairly cutthroat industry. Yeah. And I think also it can be an industry and often is an industry really ruled by spreadsheet. And that was what they were coming out of in those really dark years after the investment deal didn't work for them. And Mickey is sort of in many ways, not in always, but in many ways, like he really is a creative person's dream CEO because he's mm. as much into the design and pa- and fired up and passionate about the clothes and the textures. And he wants to know everything about like the rivet in your jeans just as much as a designer does. And that's just not mm. what most fashion executives actually spend their time thinking about. I love that scene where where Mickey and, and Jenna are sitting. I think it's in a conference room maybe together. And they're just sort of going through stacks and stacks of clothing. And Jenna's just sort of holding one thing up and deciding if she likes it or not. And if she doesn't, she drops it on the floor. And if she likes it, they keep it. And he's just like totally empowered her, right? And there's no, um, it's not like, well, how did that sell last year? And what's the statistic on that? And what's the, you know, it's just totally like going with their guts yeah. in a way that that's, yeah. that's exciting. It is. And that scene was sort of legendary in J. Crew because it happened within days of his arrival. So mm. she didn't know at that point going into that meeting where Mickey was going to stand on any of that stuff. She's like, if I tell him I think all of these clothes are worthless, like he could fire me. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and she went out on a limb and said what she really thought. And like to her amazement and shock, he agreed with her and let her do it. So they improve the clothing, they open a bunch of new stores, they restart the children's line, crew cuts. Mickey actually founds another brand around this time called Madewell. It seems like they're on top of the world, right? Everything's going great. They take the company public in 2006. That 10% stake that Mickey bought when he joined J. Crew is now worth like close to $150 million. And then in in 2008, the brand reaches like an even higher level of of cultural importance. 60, 70,000 for that outfit? Actually, this is a J. Crew ensemble. Really? Wow. Yeah, I just love hearing Michelle Obama's voice. (laughs) So describe for us what we just heard and why that's such an important moment in this story. Okay, that was Mrs. Obama on Jay Leno. In October 2008, uh, Jenna's like at home in bed uh, in Brooklyn, and she's for some reason watching The Tonight Show, but yet she said she never knew this was coming, and Michelle Obama walks out. She's wearing head-to-toe J. Crew. The way in which this was sort of miraculous, it can't be overstated because J. Crew had nothing to do with this. It was like a major coup for them, and they did not orchestrate it. Mrs. Obama's stylist went and bought her these clothes because she wanted clothes for a presidential candidate who was potentially going to be the or candidate's wife, rather, who was potentially going to be the country's first black first lady, who would be dressed in a way that was both extremely polished, ladylike, Mm -hmm. but was actually from a brand that regular people could go to the mall and buy and afford. And J. Crew became like a real tool of the Obama administration. And it took the brand into like a completely different stratosphere than it had ever been or really ever, I mean, J. Crew wouldn't have thought of that, right? It was just sort of kismet that that moment came together for them. After President Obama was elected, 
Mrs. Obama very famously continued to wear J. Crew so regularly and mix it together with her designer brands in a way that made it feel like these were good companions. Like this was all part of this like elevated good taste wardrobe of that moment. And the impact that she has, I think, can't be understated. I mean, you referenced this Harvard Business Review study in the book. She drove like billions of dollars mm-hmm. in sales and profits for not not J. Crew alone, but for the brands that that she wore. And J. Crew was was one of the chief brands that that she did wear throughout her time in the White House. I think it's important that we zoom out for a minute here and talk a little bit about race. Yeah. Um, you know, we we spoke earlier about the lifestyle that J. Crew was selling. And it's a very, very white lifestyle. I mean, if you look at those early catalogs, you, all you see are white faces. And there's an interesting paradox to me, which is that, you know, when Mickey was at Gap, one of the most successful campaigns they ran was this sort of candid photograph of Miles Davis sitting in a folding chair with his legs like draped over the back of it, looking like he's wearing Gap clothing, just some basic khakis. And the tagline was, Miles Davis wore khakis. And here we are, it's 2008, and J. Crew is generating some of its best ever sales numbers, thanks in large part to sort of the endorsement of, of Michelle Obama. They're relying on sort of the affiliation with these super influential, important, Black figures in American culture, and yet these brands are still rooted in iconography of white privilege. It's a little tough because we're looking back at these brands through the lens of the 2020s, right? Yeah. And to criticize J. Crew, you have to understand that, like, they were not alone in this. Right. Many, many brands, like, and in fact, it's hard to think of a brand that really did question this and address it earlier on. But I will say that yes, what they were selling was a super white life. I can't prove this statistically, but having looked back through the work, they did actually reflect different sorts of beauty in the catalog, Mm. but that does not in any way diminish the fact that it felt super white. Everything about it felt white. And I think that J. Crew allowed casting the occasional person of color they allowed themselves to believe that that could do all the talking for them, right? They never addressed these issues. And that was one of the things that was interesting to me about the Obama affiliation with J. Crew is that the company had never tried to change its politics. It had never overtly addressed other communities that were not part of this vision of white America. You know, it never did that. And it got extremely, in my view, extremely lucky by being adopted by the Obamas because J. Crew got to be included in this sort of grand vision of a progressive America that the Obamas mm. represented through no real work of its own. Like they basically got taken along for the ride by Mrs. Obama and her family. It really bought them a ticket, in my view, into a more yeah. progressive future that they probably, I'm giving credit here and maybe I shouldn't, That the people within the company probably did, I like to believe they did believe in, but they never did the work to get there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, they sort of caught a lucky wave in a way. It does feel like that. And a lot of people, like, 
they acknowledge it now. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, the people who used to work for the company, it's not sure. like they were inured to this. They knew it. In a stylist I spoke with from who was like kind of their, I guess, fashion director in the 90s, like a huge had a huge job there. She talked about how she knew at the time they knew so J. Crew, quote unquote, was basically like so white. You know, I mean, to describe someone as being very J. Crew, we still know what that means today, don't we? Absolutely. And it's not exactly a compliment. I don't think it is either. Just for the record, I don't think it is either. When we come back, Mickey Drexler prided himself on knowing where the hockey puck was headed. But that clairvoyance didn't last forever. Everything was moving in this direction, but I don't think anyone was prepared, or I wasn't. How Mickey Drexler got it wrong right after the break. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So let's come back to the TikTok of the, the rise and fall of J. Crew. Mickey and Jenna, it just seems like they can do no wrong. They're riding high on their affiliation with the Obamas. In 2013, the company does $2.4 billion in revenue. I mean, that's wild to think about how far it's come from that little scrappy catalog. But now that third technological revolution, online shopping, is really up and running. And it just seems like they were not totally prepared for it. Here's Mickey speaking with Andrew Ross Sorkin in 2017. You used to be on the board of Apple. Yes. When Steve Jobs was running the company. Right. Did you guys ever talk about the coming age of this happening? Well, I don't. I think, you know, it took the, the speed of it. Yeah, we talked about it for sure, but, uh, and everything was moving in this direction, but I don't think anyone was prepared, or I wasn't. This is just one hockey puck that Mickey could not <laughs> see where it was headed. Why? Why do you think he missed this one? I mean, honestly, I think it's generational. I think that the same reason that Mickey was sort of a miraculous hire for them in 2003 ended up being there. And this happens so often, doesn't it, in life? Ended up being the reason that he wasn't the right CEO for them in 2014, 15, and 16, and 17, right? Because he's a shops guy. He is energized by being on the floor of a store. He is a physical space Person. And he's a genius of that business model. I wouldn't defend Mickey, but 
I just want to say like J crew was a brand without parallel for a few years there. Yeah. And I just feel like when you're trying to service that beast, you know, like when you're on fire and you're just trying to stay on fire, I don't know if you were really like investing in all of the things that you need to be in the next phase and what they needed to do and what experts in the field in the retail were telling them to do, we're telling everybody to do is like really reorganize your back end, get ready for this. Cause it's not that it's not internet shopping that threw them off. J crew was one of the first brands of their ilk to have a website and offer online shopping. It was phone shopping. It was the idea of the phone and people demanded like free shipping, easy returns. Like it was just a whole new mode of immediacy that they were not ready for. And I think it's also good to note that phone shopping is part of what they were not prepared for. But there were other shifts that they seemed to be kind of caught on their back foot, right? Like there was a real push for inclusive sizing at this time, and J. Crew was behind on that. People were really caring about ethical sourcing of materials, you know, like transparent production lines, and J. Crew was kind of behind on that. So Mickey and Jenna both leave the company around 2016, 2017. And I think it's fair to say J. Crew has never recovered. In 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, the first major retail company to fall during the pandemic is J. Crew. J. Crew is reportedly set to file for bankruptcy. In Preparing for this conversation, Maggie, I listened to this interview that Mickey did with Guy Raz. And Guy basically asks him, you know, look, Mickey, if you could find like a young version of yourself to come in and take charge of J. Crew today, if you could find that person, could they turn it around? And here's what Mickey said in response. I think it could be done if you could find that person. Hmm. I think any brand that's well-known is turnaroundable. So I have to ask you, Maggie, what do you think? Is, is J. Crew turnaroundable? <laughs> well, I think a lot of fashion people would tell you that they're in the midst of a big turnaround right now. That's very, I mean, it is for sure more promising than any other efforts they've made in the five plus years that they were in a downward spiral. The clothes look good. They have these two cool, like super hip designers. I think that they have amazing well, I mean, I wrote a book about it. I think that they have really interesting DNA and that they're a really interesting player in the American culture, right? Like, I actually think they're kind of an important brand in our idea of ourselves and in what we want and what we aspire to. And they're baked into that after this many years, 40 years, it's 40 year anniversary of the company this year as it happens. But my feeling is that in the Obama era, especially, If you had to pick a brand that felt like America, American aspirational style, you probably would have picked J. Crew at that time. They had this Mm -hmm. real cultural dominance that none of their competitors could really touch. And they were considered fashionable, which was sort of revolutionary. I think that the way the market works now and just the way shopping works and what shows up on my phone and your phone every second you know, with new innovative brands that look and feel like really appealing, it would be hard to be that one brand at this point. I don't see that happening. 
But I do think that J. Crew could be a successful, profitable brand. And more than that, I think it could be like a great supplier of basics for people like me who need them. I mean, if they turn it around and they make great clothes again, I would go back and shop them. I'm shopping them right now. So that all seems possible to me. I, I want to share with you, you mentioned the exciting, potentially exciting design team that's now at, at J. Crew, and their head men's designer is Brendan Babenzine. I texted my coolest male friend. Ooh. And I said, is Brendan Babenzine cool? And he wrote back, I think he's cool for a dad, ah! but I don't know if you can run J. Crew and be cool. I would have to say, quote unquote, cool for a dad could be like their target audience and that would not <laughs> be wrong for them. You know, like that would actually be a really great fit for them, for the people that actually need their clothes. So that sounds like a win to me. Well, let's leave it there. Maggie Bullock, it's been so fun to talk to you and it was such a delight to read this book, The Kingdom of Prep. Thank you so much for your time today. I loved this conversation. Thank you for having me. That was Maggie Bullock, author of The Kingdom of Prep, the inside story of the rise and near fall of J. Crew, which is out now. The New Yorker recently called it, quote, a buoyant and persuasive account of how the company's fluctuating fortunes reflect Americans' shifting attitudes towards dress, shopping, and identity. I could not have put it better myself. And earlier, you heard from Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. To listen to her series, American Ivy, search for Articles of Interest wherever you get your podcasts. There's also a link in the episode notes. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Jason Freeman. Our executive producer is Rufus Griscom. The team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network are the Mickeys to our Jennas or the Jennas to our Mickeys. Either way, we couldn't do what we do without them or without you, dear listener. So thanks for being with us. See you next week.